This morning I'll be preaching from John chapter 8, verses 24 through 38. I told you that you would die in your sins, for unless you believe that I am he, you will die in your sins. So they said to him, Who are you? Jesus said to them, Just as I have been telling you from the beginning, I have much to say to you and much, much to say about you and much to judge. But he who sent me is true, and I declare to the world what I have heard from him. They did not understand that he had been speaking about, to them about the Father. So Jesus said to them, When you have lifted up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am he, and that I do nothing on my own authority, but speak just as the Father taught me. And he who sent me is with me. He has, left, he has not left me alone, for I always do the things that are pleasing to him. As he was saying these things, many believed in him. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, If you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. They answered him, We are offspring of Abraham, and we have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, you will be free indeed. I know that you are the offspring of Abraham, yet you seek to kill me because my words find no place in you. I speak of what I have seen with my father, and you do what you have heard from your father. The word of the Lord. Amen. You may be seated. Well, I am not Pastor Billy, as you all know. Um, I got uh, called up, as it were, this week, and I am uh, thankful to be here and honored to be here. Uh, Billy has been doing uh, a, ser a series on husbands, wives, and parents, and this week we jump back into uh, the book of John uh, and continue on in, in uh, chapter 8. Uh, but I thought it would be important to go back and just read through what got us here, right? So in chapter 8, you've got the great questioning and the traps, trying to trap Jesus in what he's saying and what he's teaching to see if this guy is really true, to prove him false. Uh, and here in uh, the latter part of chapter 8, it gets very confrontational. It is no longer subversive confrontation. It's no longer behind the scenes. It's no longer quiet. It's no longer schemes. It's just flat out uh, a fight. It's flat out a fight here. Uh, and Jesus does not pull punches uh, throughout this. But there's a, a few things in here that the more I studied, uh, I thought, I'm not going to be able to fill an hour with this. The more I studied it quickly became, okay, there's six weeks worth of, uh, of sermon notes in here. The, the depth of just um, a couple of these verses uh, through thir from 31 to uh, 38, you could spend weeks on just going through. Um, this morning, I'm really going to focus on that section, uh, John 8, 31 through 38. 
Uh, so let's read verse 31. So Jesus said to the Jews who had believed him, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples. All right, just that verse right there. It's a good example. We could spend weeks on what that means. Uh, and we're going to dive into it a little bit, but I would encourage everybody um, to do a little self-study on the word abide, how many times it's used in Scripture. Just pull out the Strong's Concordance and look at how many times the word abide is in Scripture. Uh, it is a common theme through every book of the Bible, not just in one or another. And so we don't have time to read the 50 verses there. Um, big thing to note here, verse 31. He's not talking to those who don't claim to believe. He's not trying to convince the Pharisees here. He's trying to convince those who in verse 30 heard him and believed him. And the way ESV reads, believed in him. So he is speaking to a very particular audience. He's speaking to the people that are going to be following him. He's not speaking to people who would think that their enemies are trying to trap Jesus. He has turned to those who are actually saying that they believe. And he draws a st stark, stark contrast between those who said they believed and what real belief looks like. How to know a saving faith from a false profession. How to know a saving faith from a rocky soil. Uh, the parable of the soil in Luke 8, uh, we're very familiar with it, but let's turn to Luke 8, uh, 13 and 14. And let's read that. Speaking of the parable of the, of the uh, seeds here. And the ones on the rock are those who, when they had heard the word, receive it with joy. But these have no root that you believe for a while and in the time of testing fall away. And as for what fell among the thorns, they are those who hear but as they go on their way, they are choked out by the cares and riches and pleasures of life, and their fruit does not mature. Ouch. How do you know a saving faith from a false profession? We know them by their fruit. We all know, uh, we've all seen, we've all had family members or friends, we've all had church members that we thought were with us, leave the faith. Uh, renounce Christianity, renounce any God whatsoever, would proclaim atheists from the rooftops, and it fills us with doubt. And we look around at each other, and we wonder, how could this happen? How is this real? How can someone who I saw lead a youth group turn away? How could I see a Sunday school teacher turn away? How could I think... This person that I knew so well, that I loved, that we played together, we hung out together, we Bible study and prayed together, went to funerals for family members together, turn away. And then, and then treat us as the enemy. And it hurts. It hurts. But the parable here tells us clearly what's going on. Uh, and Jesus is pointing this out at these believers. There's a difference between saying 
you believe and coming to church a few times. There's a difference between reading your Bible and obeying the Bible, right? There's a difference between what the demons know. The demons know who Christ is. They even know his voice because they tremble at it. They tremble at his very name. There's a difference between that kind of knowledge and obedient, surrendering faith that daily picks up its cross and follows Christ. Uh, Matthew chapter 7, verses 21 through 23, is a famous passage, a difficult passage, probably the scariest passage in all of Scripture. Indeed, I have a family member who cannot talk about this Scripture because they are so filled with fear that they might be one that they start to have a panic attack. So let's read Matthew chapter 7, starting in verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. And on that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Humans, we tend to do things like sheep. We tend to do things all the same. We all go straight to the, oh no, is this me? We all go to the, the fear here of thinking that, hey, I go to church. I, Joshua Vanden, preaching this morning. Is this me, right? Could this be me? Could that be me? Uh, could I be one who, on that day, Christ says, I never even knew who you were. Could I be doing all of this work and all of this toil and not even know whom I call Savior? Thankfully, thankfully, we don't have to be afraid. The answer is actually right here in the same passage, and he says it twice. We'll start with the last one, which is at the end of verse 23, workers of lawlessness. So be the opposite. If the workers of lawlessness are those who are going to say, Lord, Lord, and he says, I don't know who you were, you workers of lawlessness, then be workers of of the law. Be workers of God's law. Be doers of God's law. That means obey it. That means when Scripture says, go forth to all the nations, that means go forth. When it means pray, it means pray. When it says meditate on my word, it means meditate on my word. When it means some hard truths that you don't want to believe, it means believe it anyway. Earlier in that same passage, it says it again in a different way. And it's in verse 21, the second half of verse 21. But the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. But the one. Not these workers of lawlessness, but the ones who do the will of my Father. If we call ourselves people of the word, we should know what the word says is the will of the Father. And that we should be about doing it. And if we are, then we should have no fear that our faith will be found to be empty because we realize that it's not our faith in the first place. He who started a work in me 
is faithful and just to complete it. But it is important to know that this is the type of person that Christ is speaking to. He's talking to those who had a form of faith, a form of religious observance, a form of spirituality, right? They believe in something out there, some deity or some power, but they miss the Creator and His Son and the Holy Spirit. They miss it. They miss the Bible. They're blind, deaf, and dumb. We should not expect common man to understand the wisdom of God. In fact, many times God says the exact opposite is true. The wisdom of God is foolish to man, right? So we should not, should not be shocked by it, but we should understand that we don't have to be that way. It is given to us what we should do. It is given to us for what we should do. The difference between a saving faith and a head knowledge faith, for my first R.C. Sproul quote, we must possess what we profess. Real long, super simple, super hard. We must possess what we profess. If we profess to be followers, yet we do not follow, we're clanging symbols. Right? If we press, profess to be people of the word, I'm a believer, I'm a Christian, yet you don't act like Christ? Ouch. That doesn't speak very well, very well for us. Our fruit, our works is our fruit. Our works are our fruit. That is what people judge us by. That is what we are to judge each other by. And in a little bit, I'll show you that Christ himself said, judge me by my works. So we must take careful, careful attention to the difference between just knowing something and what it means to actually believe it. Right? There's a difference there. Verse 31 also has a key, key word. The word abide. I already mentioned it comes up so, so many times. What does the world say about the word abide? Google defines it as to accept or act in accordance with a rule, decision, or recommendation. To accept or act in accordance with rule, decision, or recommendation. Webster defines the word abide as to conform to. Or to put, uh, or, or to accept without objection. To accept without objection. I must tell myself here a little bit when, when I read that, was studying this. I actually brought it up to my wife and said, "Oh, if our kids would just accept without objection." <laughs> yeah, yeah, I did. And then I got kicked in the back of the head and said, oh, you foolish one, you should do the same thing. You're no better. Lord, help us to accept your ways without our objection, with our, without our excuses, without our twists and our takes and trying to leverage our own little ways into it. 
take him at his word. The Greek word meno means to remain or to put another way, to put a negative connotation on it. Instead of to remain, it means do not stray from. So if you want to look at stay in one place or you want to look at the don't leave here, it means the same. It means here's your boundary. Stay here. Be here. Right? So uh, in this word abide and in these various definitions, there's three things that I want to point out about this word abide. First, to abide implies a complete surrender. To abide implies a complete surrender. If it means to accept, if it means to conform to, if it means to act in accordance with, then it means to give up what you think is right. Our wisdom is not right. We need to recognize that. What we think is right is foolish. What God says is right is right. So we must surrender ourselves to the will of the Father. And to put it another way, and I know I quote this scripture often, but it's just too good not to. Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual act, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. We should write that on our doorways, on our foreheads, on our hands. Present ourselves every single day. Lord, I'm awake, I'm up, and that means this day you've given me breath for your glory, and so I will submit what I thought I wanted to do today to what you would have me do today. I submit what I think is right today to what you say is right today. I will not continue in this sin that I've had, that I've been fighting. I will fight it again today. I repent. I'm sorry. Help me. Every day. Not odd days, not even days, not in days when I've studied the Word. Days when you haven't studied the Word. Wake up, repent, and then get in the Word. Then go to work. Right? It is that simple, yet it is that incredibly hard. We, myself included, are not known for being that disciplined. We're not. Why? Because we haven't surrendered what we said was right. We want to do what we want to do. We get in our habit. We get in our ways. We get into what routines we want to get routine to get done what we want to get done. And we ignore what God said was right. And what is right, I appeal. Can you hear it? I appeal strongly urge, I beg, please present yourselves daily by the mercies of God to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable. Abide in the word. Obey it, please. Don't just say it. Surrender to it. The second thing that 
abide implies, is a fight to obey or waging warfare to remain in. We know this. We know our heart. We just sang it uh, so appropriately that our hearts are prone to wander. Lord, I feel it. They are. We're human. We still have a sinful nature. But we must be killing sin or sin will be killing you, John Owen. We must fight. The Christian life is not a passive life. The Christian life is not even a peaceful life. It is a warfare life. And we better get after the warfare. It's not a cheerleader life. It's not sit back on the sidelines. It's pick up a sword and go slay the dragon. And the dragon, most of the time, is us. The devil didn't make me do it. My own heart wanted to. That's not the devil. That's my sin. That's my pride. That's my anger. That's my desire. Whatever it is, that's my problem. That's why I need a Savior. I don't need Jesus just to go take care of Satan and throw him in the lake of the fire. That's not enough. I need a Savior on top of that. My sin is going to keep me from a perfect and eternal God in heaven. Short of God's forgiveness, that's where we would all be. Ephesians 2, 8, and 9. Another very famous passage. Uh, 8 through 10, actually. 8 through 10. For by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we, may, that we should walk in them. If he prepared good works for us to do, should we not be about doing those good works? Of course. Of course we should. So aren't we always 100% of the time? No. We fail. But that doesn't mean we give up the fight because we failed today. That means we pick up, we get on our knees, we pick up our sword, and we go out, this day I will serve the Lord. And we pick up the sword and go out tomorrow, this day I serve the Lord. It is implied and understood that we are created with a purpose, and that means we are to fight to fulfill that purpose for the glory of God. The third thing that abide has built into it is no definition of time. The word abide does not have a definition of time. It does not end. No time frame is given in verse 31. No adjective, no time frame, no limit, no cap, no beginning, no end. It says abide. It doesn't say start abiding. It doesn't say abide until you die. It says Abide. So, a couple of things to put that a little bit into a different context. It does not have an age requirement. It does not say when you hit 10 years old, then you should abide in the Word. It says abide. 
It does not have an expiration date. It doesn't say when you hit retirement, you get the rest of your life off to do what you want to do because you worked hard. No, that's an American dream. That's not God's dream. It says abide. We're to abide, abide, surrender, and follow the word of God from this day through all eternity. Through all eternity, we're to abide in, in God's ways. We won't get to heaven and then suddenly stop doing the will of the Father. If anything, when we get to heaven, we'll be freely able to do the will of the Father. We won't have the fight to do the will of the Father. We will peacefully do the will of the Father. And we will praise Him forevermore for being able to do the will of the Father without the fight, without the mess-ups, without the mistakes. <clears throat> so, when we see this word abide, think of these things. Think of the surrender, think of the, think of the fight to obey, and think of the time frame given. All right? So, I'm going to read a few passages. Um, going to read a few passages here. I could read several others. For reference, 1 John chapter 2, verses 4 through 6. Also, 1 John chapter 5 and verse 3. And Matthew chapter 12, verse 50. And there are Many, many, many more. Uh, but those were three, uh, three really good ones I would like to read through. John chapter 14. Here we go. This is going to be verses 12 through 24. And listen. Listen for... The, this concept of abiding, of surrendering, fighting without end. Verses 12 through 24. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will he do, because I am going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Yet a little while, and the world will see me no more, but you will see me because I live. You also will live. In that day, you will know that I am in my Father, and you are in me. I in you. Whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Let me stop right there. <clears throat> I'm also going to read John fifteen seven. 
John 15, 7. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever it is you wish and it will be done for you. By this, my Father is glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. Abide in me and bear much fruit to prove that you are my disciples. And then John 15.10, just a little bit ahead. Again, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. Over and over and over and over. I and him, him and me, me and you. This abiding is vital to understand, right? It is not head knowledge. It is remaining in and fighting to beat down the old self to stay in the will of the Father. So Jesus has told these seeming believers if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. The truth will set you free. So what truth? There's only one truth. And again, to quote Sproul, all truth is God's truth. I've heard a hundred people say that, but I actually found him being cited for it. Um, all truth is God's truth. The truth is will set you free. The revealed word is God's truth. Truth from the one who has power over eternal life and eternal separation from God. The wise study it and obey it. The foolish do not consider it something to be worthy of their time. It is said that the, uh, in Scripture that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Let's think about this for a second. Is that truth? Yes. It's Why? Because God's word said it. Therefore, it is truth. So if the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, we need to start with a healthy respect, admiration, and fear of the one who has your soul in their hand. Right? If we think of Isaiah in chapter 6, we won't read it, but it is in the year King Uzziah died, Isaiah is taken up into heaven. He sees angels flying around. Holy, holy, holy. And Isaiah is filled with the fear of the Lord. And he says, woe is me, for I am undone. And we know the passage. But Isaiah was filled with a fear of the Lord, and it led to him, woe is me, surrendering. And then that surrender led to him saying, here I am. Send me, obeying. And then that led to the fight to remain. And then the Lord held his faith true to the end. And he is, he is Isaiah the mighty prophet. We can learn a lot just by that little sequence. That little sequence of coming undone. Facing the truth that we are not in control, and what we think is right is wrong. So freedom from what? If you notice verse 33, they answered him, we're the offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. How is it that you say you will become free? This cracks me up. You're Jews. 
living under Roman rule. <laughs> How can you say you're not free? What were they thinking? Were they really so satisfied being under Roman rule because they were afforded some liberties to, to continue to worship and practice their religion that they just ignored the fact that they were conquered by an, another country? Did they forget Exodus and half of their feasts and the Passover and what all that was from, from the delivering of his people? Did they, did they forget the exile to Babylon? Did they forget any of the Philistines? I mean, what do you, how could they possibly say We've never been captive. Unless they're not talking about countries. And they're trying to talk about spiritual. And it's very interesting, as I studied MacArthur and Sproul and Ryle, read Spurgeon, uh, Matthew Henry, read several. There's some disagreement here on what the, what the possible argument here was. And while it's preposterous on one side to say that they have never been conquered, if you do draw back to the Old Testament that these are the children of Abraham, the children of the promise, right? God's chosen people, if they identified themselves, hear me on this, if they identified themselves as Christian, as true believers, as true Israel, then they would not see themselves as bondage to sin or the devil, or the world. They would see themselves as, quote-unquote, today's vernacular, saved, set apart, holy. However, when Jesus replies here, it becomes fairly certain that whether these Jewish believers were talking about a physical rule or a spiritual rule, Jesus leaves no doubt that he's referencing the spiritual, right? Jesus answered to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. The, sin, the slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains in the house forever. All right? Everyone, he goes immediately to sin. He doesn't talk politics. He doesn't talk geography. He doesn't talk you know, geopolitical problems. He goes straight to the heart of the matter, which Jesus always does. He goes straight to sin. He's telling them this is not a problem of your biology. It's not because you don't have the right genetics, right? It's not a problem of your heritage. Uh, this is a problem of your heart. And what's interesting here is we just saw this little, this little interaction, but let's go backward in time just for a brief second here to Matthew chapter 3, verse 9, and you'll see that Jesus called him out and said, don't ever use this as an excuse. Chapter, Matthew 3, uh, verse 9, and do not presume to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father, for I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children of Abraham that don't count. God created him Adam of dust. He can create children of Abraham out of these stones. That, that, that's not good enough. That's not what I'm talking about. Don't go there. And here, they have gone there. And so Jesus just goes right on by and says, no, sin. Your heart is in bondage. Your mind is in bondage. The slave does not remain in the house forever. The son remains forever. 
slavery in this day and age, indentured servitude in this day and age, was very common. Very common. Throughout, throughout the world was very common. But what was interesting is that when a slave died, they had no inheritance. When the son died, the son had the inheritance. There is a difference here. The slave does not remain in the house forever. He remains in a time, but when he dies, he's out. Or if he served his time and bought his freedom, he's done. He's out. The son remains in the house forever. So whoever the son sets free is free indeed. That is why we praise God for our salvation is because we are granted inheritance because of the Son is in the house of the one living God forever. Forever and ever. So if the Son sets you free, you will be free indeed. And again, this is a passage I'll be careful of because we could chase for weeks. We could chase for weeks. So much depth here in this, in this passage. Um, that truly Billy could come back next week, cover the same verses, deliver an absolutely different sermon, and be just, oh, well, blow mine out of the water anyway, but he would come back, not even have to touch any of the same points. There are so much in these verses, so much. Matthew Henry spoke of their confusion uh, of bondage. What can we be free of? We're free already. We're the children of Abraham. Matthew Henry says this. This is coming from his commentary. Spoke about their confusion this way. Carnal hearts are sensible of no other grievance than those that molest the body and, in, and injure their secular affairs. Talk to them of encroachments on their civil liberty and property. Tell them of waste committed on their lands or damage done to their houses and they understand you very well and can give a sensible answer. The thing that touches and affects them. But discourse to them on the bondage of sin or captivity to Satan and a liberty to, by Christ. Tell them of wrong done to their souls and you bring strange things to them. Tell them somebody's going to burn their house down or somebody ran over their fence, or somebody ran into your car, okay, that affects me, I see it, I can touch it, I know what happened, all right, we can deal with this, they get it. Tell them that their soul is in danger of hellfire because they're an unrepentant life, they, that's just weird. Yeah, okay, whatever for you. I'm good over here. I don't feel that. I don't see it. I can't, can't touch it. It's, it's a strange thing to me, right? An unbeliever can't get it, truly. They are deaf, dumb, and blind, and save the work of the Holy Spirit, cannot see it. So Jesus answers them and emphasizes here, truly, truly. So he, the Lord is taking time to tell us, be careful, do not miss this. 
There's something here worth pausing for. There's something here through time to put into my holy word so that my people will understand this. So please, take time. Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. One big notion to understand here. This is not referencing sin once and forever damned. It's not referencing original sin. This is referencing a life of sin, a habit of sin. One who sins has a desire to sin and keeps on sinning. Okay? Everyone who continues to commit sin is a slave to sin. It's not talking about those who have been redeemed. It's talking about those who are unredeemed and a slave to sin. R.C. Sproul, again, he uses the metaphor of a, of a slave ship, of a galley, slave galley. If you think of American history, you think of the ships coming over from Africa with slave after slave, deck after deck, filling up entire ships. The slaves on those ships still had feelings, right? They still had thoughts. They still were awake. They even had some choices they could make. However, they were chained to the ship. And where the ship was going, they couldn't change it. They were slaves. They did not have the power to change the direction. And they did not have the vision to see where they were going chained to the ship. They were following the ship not because of their own will, but because they were chained to the ship. Slavery to sin is much the same way. Most of the time, we do not have a vision of where this sin is leading us. We can still think. We can still make some choices. We still have our feelings and our emotions. But we don't understand what the ultimate outcome for this is going to be. So, on this ship, what the slaves did not have was a hero that comes in and breaks the chains. Right? They did not have some navy come and rescue them. What we do have is a Savior who came to break the chains of sin for us so that we don't have to be slaves to sin. There is a good ending. There's a beautiful, sweet, epic ending for us. Because we were slaves to sin on a ship headed to hell. And we had a hero come in and save the day. 
cut our chains free and said, this one is mine. That one is mine. This one is mine. Come with me. And our eyes were opened, our chains were broken, and we followed. And praise God, because without his intervention, we never could have broken those chains. Now, I'm going to close um, on a couple of things here. I'm talking about abiding, talking about slavery to sin, being set free. I want to make sure we properly not only just understand what we're set free from, who set us free, but also what that life after, how then shall we live, to quote Schaefer, how then shall we live? Because the hero set us free. And by the way, the hero is real. This is not fiction we're talking about. My hero is real. So I'd like to turn to John chapter 10, and verse 37 and 39. Verses, John chapter 10, verses 37 and 39. Where is 30? If I am not doing the works of my Father, then do not believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works, that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. Well, there's abide. You can hear it in there at the end. But Jesus, Jesus himself, our hero, the one that we're to model, the one that we're to grow up into, says, you want to know who I am? Look at my fruit. Does my fruit not reflect that of God Almighty? And he challenged him. He was confident in the fruit. He was confident in the word, the mission. He was confident in what he was on earth to do and how he did it. If I am not doing the works of my father, don't believe me. I'm a false prophet. Don't believe me. This is the words of our Lord here. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works. At least believe the evidence if you don't believe me. If you don't believe the words coming out of my mouth, look at how I have served sacrificially, healed generously, taught rightly, even so that the hearers who did not know him said, this is one who speaks with authority. This one is different. This guy's special. They could see it. Don't get hung up on the words. Look at the fruit. Look at the fruit. That you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. Jesus is not hiding who he is. He is not hiding what he's about. And he points to the fruit of his ministry as the evidence of his ministry. Now, 
when our accusers come, and they're going to come in this life, it can be friends, it can be family, it can be coworkers, it can be anything. When our accusers come, it can be ourselves. When our accusers come, can we say the same? Can we point to our life? Can we point to the good works that the Father has prepared for us? Did we do them? Can we point to them? Can we follow the example of Christ here and point to the works and say, look, I believe, I know that I believe, and I can have peace in knowing that I believe because of this. Right? It is more than just head knowledge. We can't think ourselves to heaven. We're not smart enough. Augustine wasn't smart enough. That's a work of the Holy Spirit that makes the foolish wise. Praise God for that, or I'd be more of a fool. All right, so I would like to close uh, reading a passage out of Psalms 119. And I pray that we're inspired by this. I pray that we're encouraged by this to get on our knees, to pick up our sword, and to slay whatever sin is in our life. Psalm 119, the entire chapter, is a beautiful chapter. And the psalmist is praising God left and right and over and over for his precepts and his ways and how valuable they are to his life and how he treasures them. I would like to read uh, verses 9 through 16. How can a young man keep his way pure? By guarding it according to your word. Abide. With my whole heart I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. Let me abide. I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Let the word abide. Blessed are you, O Lord. Teach me your statutes. With my lips I declare all the rules of your mouth. Let me surrender to your ways. In the way of your testimonies I delight as much as in all riches. Nothing is more important. I will meditate on your precepts and I fix my eyes on your ways. I will delight in your statutes. I will not forget your word. I will abide. This morning I pray. I pray that the word is spoken. The Holy Spirit does his work. That he grows his word in our hearts and our lives. And that we truly understand a little bit more what it means to abide.